BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. On this episode, we're going to talk some rock, some metal, and anything else we feel like. We're also going to jam some tunes, have a drink, and share some honest opinions. Thanks for listening to the Talking Metal Podcast. Let's get things started. Here's an old classic that sounds just as good today as it did when we were kids.
Welcome to another edition of Talking Metal. My name is Mark Striegel. How are you guys? A little Def Leppard going back to 1981 right there. Me and my wine. Um, a song I remember seeing the music video for, which I guess came out a number of years after the song. Maybe two or three years after the song. I'm not I'm not exactly sure on that. But let's uh, let's talk about this song. Tony Kosminski has rated all the Def Leppard songs, okay? So he's basically put them in order. And on his list, which is a, a crazy amount of, of songs, he has a little description of the song, gives his little couple lines uh, on each one, and he has them rated all the way to number one. That song right there, Tony has at number 67. And we're going to talk to Tony about his his list that he came up with for for Def Leppard. And we're also going to link that list through the show notes. Again, these are the greatest, or these are all Def Leppard songs rated from worst to best by Tony Kosminski. And we're going to get right into a chat with him. I do want to remind you guys, we have face masks. I personally think it's important to, to wear face masks. And I know a lot of businesses are requiring them. Some states are requiring them. And that's why I got you guys covered. I got Talking Metal face masks. They're $18 for people who live in the States. Believe it or not, by the time I mail them out, uh, I'm not really making much of a profit, but I I make a few bucks on each one for sure. And uh, it's a great way to support what I do. It's a great way to take care of yourself. And it is um, just, uh, you know, smart to wear a mask right now. Let's get through this. Let's get 2021 back on on target for concerts, for hanging out, and uh, you know all that stuff is actually secondary for me. I, I wanted my my kids back in school more than anything, so yeah, let's all let's all make that happen moving forward. I, I think we I think we can. I was a couple weeks back. I may have been like, oh, I think twenty twenty one might be a wash too, but I don't know. We'll see. I'm I'm now once again after initially feeling optimistic, then not so much. In the last week or so, I'm starting to feel a little more optimistic again, uh, fingers crossed. But anyways, uh, that's that. Let's get into our conversation with Tony Kosminski, who does a lot of great writing on a lot of different sites. He's going to tell us about that, and uh, I encourage you to check out his list of Def Leppard songs rated uh, from worst to best. It's linked through the show notes on TalkingRock.net. He also does some writing on TalkingRock.net. So, great guy. I've known him a long time. And here we go. We're going to talk Def Leppard with Tony Kosminski here on Talking Metal. Hey, it's Mark Striegel of Talking Metal and TalkingRock.net. And we recently had a old friend of mine come into the uh, the world of TalkingRock.net, which is the website I run. He wrote a, a great article for us, which I want to talk to him about. And I also want to talk to him about one of my favorite bands, Def Leppard. So please welcome Tony Kosminski to the podcast. Tony, how are you, man? I'm very good. Very good. Thanks for having me, Mark. Oh, you bet. Can you explain to the listeners uh, a little bit about the gentleman you wrote the article about for TalkingRock.net, who he was, and uh, maybe just, you know, a, a minute or two on, on Charles? Yeah, Charles Bradley it was this great American soul singer. And um, basically what he did was, is for years, he kind of struggled in the New York area. He was a, like I said, he was a soul singer, but he was mostly a James Brown impersonator. So he would, you know, go out, do his James Brown impersonations, 
And then eventually he started getting hooked up with some of the right musicians and started writing some of his own stuff. And he got signed to Daptone Records in his 50s. Um, I mean, when you think about everything we know about the music industry and everything today, that that's really, really kind of extraordinary. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, in his 50s, he got a record contract with Daptone and they created three albums, three albums that sound like they're out of, you know, 60 stack soul um, from the 60s. And they're just beautiful. They're gorgeous. But one of the things that was really interesting about Charles is he was such a incredible performer that he got got to play like Lollapalooza and South by Southwest and, uh, you know, Austin City Limits. He, he was a big draw at a lot of these music festivals. And I remember watching him in the middle of a field at Lollapalooza doing splits in a purple sequin suit. And it, it was just one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen, wow. let alone at a festival stage with a lot of, you know, EDM and alternative artists. Yeah. Um, and so it basically, you know, and he, he covered Nirvana and Neil Young on his first album and his second album, Victim of Change. He really kind of found his own groove, really started, you know, finding his, you know, his own voice. And, um, and then his third record, you know, he he did a cover of Black Sabbath Changes, you know, and I think it's a song that every one of your listeners will probably know and love. And he completely took it in a totally new direction. And it just the whole album is just wonderful. But, you know, it's, in fact, the album's called Changes. You know, the, the big the big notice of it was um, Black Sabbath, the Black Sabbath cover. And it was just this wonderful, soulful take of a guy, you know, older in life you know, looking more towards the end. And um, sadly it was, he, he got stomach cancer and he died about a year and a half after the album had come out, but uh, just a wonderful voice. There's a documentary called uh, soul of America. That's someone, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's streaming right now, but it might be on YouTube. It's just, just a great look at his life that uh, if, you know, viewers are interested, they could, you know, check out more on him. Absolutely. And and even um, Ozzy Osbourne was a, a, a fan of that version of the Black Sabbath classic changes that that he did. And Ozzy, I, when when Charles died, he tweeted out he was deeply saddened to hear that and, and mentioned how talented the guy was. So, yeah, c- crazy story and, and beautiful music, kind of a tragic uh sad premature ending for him but let's uh, and let's remind the listeners that that you have an article up about him on talkingrock.net i will relink that in today's show notes for this podcast episode which is talking metal and a band that you know when they first came out heavy metal was considered something probably different than what we kind of view it as today but bands like Def Leppard, ACDC, you know, Michael Shanker, Scorpions, all those bands, Van Halen even. I mean, when I was when I was in junior high school, we called all those bands heavy metal bands. And now maybe it would be more like commercial hard rock for a, a band like Def Leppard. Um but one of my all it doesn't really matter, I guess, but one of my all time favorite bands and, and a band I always try to go and see play live when they come through my area. And you did this incredible list for Ultimate Classic Rock. And I guess it was posted just about a year ago. And it's it's just such a good detailed list of correct me if I'm wrong, but basically all their songs minus some like what, like demos and, and covers, right? And you rate them in from from worst to best. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, 
it's every uh, original song that they made. The only thing that's we, we left off the covers, like you know, their yeah, their great tribute album, yeah, uh, isn't included, and a few others. And uh, yeah, yeah, we, we kind of kept with you know, I did one for Bon Jovi the year previously, and we did I did everything on that. I didn't do covers. Covers gets into a messy boat, but uh, yeah, it's it's all 145 original songs. And we are going to have you back to talk about the Bon Jovi songs because it's a kind of Bon Jovi's a fascinating band for me because. I was so into those first four records, and then for me personally, I just they kind of fell off the radar, and I, I never really got back into anything they were releasing. Sure, there were songs here and there, but we'll we'll save that for for when you come back to talk about Bon Jovi. But let's let's just start at the bottom of this list because again, we'll link this through the show notes because it is a great list. Some like the song. Possibly, I guess I would consider this what you're saying is the worst Def Leppard song. Uh, is and it's called "Gimme a Job." Any anything you can share on this this song? Possibly the worst Def Leppard song. Checking in at well, 145 on the list of 145 songs. You know, it it was on this actual DVD single in 2002 to a single they put out in Europe called "Long Long Way to Go." And it's just, it just, the chorus just repeats itself. I mean, it, it literally sounds like they did it in about 15, 20 minutes. You know, the label asked, do you have anything laying around like for a B-side? And they gave it. Um, the best part, and this is one of the things I love most about Duff Leppard, is that what they do is they um, always gave notes when they put out their 12 inches CD singles, deluxe editions. They gave notes about what you know, when this was recorded, why it was recorded. And in the notes here, um, it, it says, Joe plays the solo, nothing to do with us. Phil Collin and Vivian Campbell actually came out and stated that. You know, right. it, it's a, it's a, it's an easy song to kind of throw at the bottom. It was just a B-side. It was something they threw off at the end, you know, of the uh, probably end of lunch or end of sessions. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, I'd oddly like to know more about. There's just nothing memorable memorable about it. So that's kind of why it wound up there. Right on. Um, And again, so many different songs from different eras. I'm kind of just skimming through this and we haven't really spoken about this off the uh, before the interview started. So if I if I throw you off, uh, please let me know. We can always edit this or whatever. But how about Satellite from 1980? Uh, Def Leppard's debut is often viewed as an essential new wave of British heavy metal album. And Satellite is one of the boldest songs. Um, that that first Def Leppard album, I got into Def Leppard around high and dry as a kid. But I went back then and listened to that record probably after Pyromania came out. And I really, over the years, just I loved that first Def Leppard record on Through the Night. There was a rawness to it. But can you talk about that song or maybe even the first Def Leppard song more uh, just in general? Or Def Leppard album, album, not song. Yeah. On Through the Night's an interesting album for me. You know, I got my first real-time Def Leppard album was Hysteria. And obviously I got into Pyromania and High and Dry after that. Um, On Through the Night was an album that like none of my friends had. I, I didn't know anyone that had it. So I actually had to, I think it was a friend of a friend that I got a dub from. Um, I'll be, be totally you know, honest here, it's not my favorite Def Leppard record. Um, I mean, there are moments of brilliance on it. There, I mean, I mean, Satellite, Hello America, 
um, you know, get your rocks off. I mean, there's just some great, great riffs on it. Uh, but it's, I think they were still trying to figure out who they were. They were still finding their craft. You know, they did it over a few weeks. I mean, if you ask the band, the band is nowhere near um, as much, you know, a fan of it as I think some of the, you know, new wave of British heavy metal fans are. But uh, it is it, it is viewed as an, an essential album, you know, from that genre. And, and I mean, Satellite is really, really incredible. And I think one of the things that, um, you know, we forget about, especially on those early records, is the dual guitar attack of both so Steve Clark and Pete Willis. You know, they've got like, you know, they're, I can't, I don't know if they've been influenced by Priest, but they definitely took a page from them with those dual guitars, the melodic guitars. And like hearing the two of them together is really, really something special. And Satellite was one of those songs that when I went back and did this exercise and had to kind of rank them, it was one of those ones that I kind of wish I could have gone higher. Um, it was just hard, but it, that was like a song that like I kind of forgot about. And um, it's a great reason, you know, why we I do lists like this because you know, you, you find these hidden gems and you're like, oh, my God, I forgot about that. How good the band sounds. And yes. really, you, you feel the um, you feel the promise of what they're going to become on a song like Satellite. And Satellite checks in uh, at number 96 of 145 Def Leppard songs on your list, which is on ultimateclassicrock.com. Uh, the, the name you mentioned there, Pete Willis. Now, a lot of people... We think of Def Leppard and, you know, the classic era of Def Leppard, Steve Clark, you know, Rick, you know, Phil, Joe, um, uh, two Ricks, actually, right? And so, but yeah, Pete Willis, and I, when I interviewed Joe Elliott, I actually spoke to him about Pete Willis and got kind of an interesting answer. But Pete Willis, he was... As far as those first three records go, a lot of people, you know, think, oh, Phil Collin was on on Pyromania, but Pete played on that record too, and also was a primary songwriter for those first three albums. Would Def Leppard be where they are now without Pete Willis's early involvement? I mean, in some ways he always kind of felt like the Cliff Burton of Def Leppard to me, but far less credited and praised than a guy like Cliff Burton. Well, it's, it, I mean, like you said, you know, he got all the way into the pyromania sessions and the thing about Pete was they never had an issue with his playing. They never had an issue with his songwriting. It, it was his, you know, kind of substance abuse issues that really took over. Um, I mean, he, he's a co-writer on, you know, bringing on the heartbreak. He is, you know, he, he's really integral to that guitar sound on that high and dry people like a lot of hard rock, heavy metal fans. I know high and dry is their favorite Def Leppard album. And I kind of can't argue with that personally. You know, I, I don't know if I would rank, rank it that high for myself, but I can't argue with it because it's just this perfectly collected um, group of songs, you know, that Mutt and the band work together and it just, it just works perfectly. You know, they hadn't quite gone into the pop waters yet. So it's it's a little more ACDC, I think, than uh, people get the credit for. Definitely. And I mean, Pete Willis also, um, I, I remember, you know, Me and My Wine and that music video. He was such a prominent figure in that. And, and a songwriter, although he was kind of, uh, you know, sidelined, I guess, possibly during the Pyromania sessions, uh, a songwriter on the song Photograph, too, which is just incredible. Photograph, I believe, comes in... I know we're jumping around here. 
Uh, yeah. But that what number two on the list? I'm looking. Number I'm, number two. Yeah. What yeah. what what an incredible song. Any anything you could share on that song for the talking metal listeners? I mean I mean photograph is it's just you know, it's it's funny when you when you do these lists you, you wanna you wanna cover everything. And you sometimes don't always want to go with the most obvious choice, you know, for number one. Um, you know, just sometimes the most popular song or the song that spent the most weeks at number one isn't always necessarily the best. Uh, but Photograph is really hard to beat. I mean, you know, from, from that guitar riff, you know, from the, um, the opening, you know, the whales, you know, that Joe Elliott kind of puts in. It's just so good. It's so good. And... Um, yeah, yeah, it just I mean it just it's just this perfect little song. And like, you know, one of the things I wrote about in the article is, you know, they were couldn't get through the third album. They just couldn't get through it. And you know, they Mutt was a was a taskmaster and they just were really struggling with him. And then, you know, they were watching the World Cup in the summer of 82 when all of a sudden, you know, Steve Clark who was completely disinterested went into the other room during a break in the game and just started working away on that, you know, opening riff and everything. And when the band member kind of heard the sound, they entered the room, he just looked at them and said, I fixed it. Right. You know, and, and that's a great way to, you know, you know, it just, it's just a great way of them kind of working, you know, through a song. It's a, it's a really great signal to the world at large of what this band was willing to do. You know, most other bands just probably would have taken whatever they had on the demo and recorded it. You know, Def Leppard were taskmasters. You know, I'm going to use that word more than once because they really, really put a lot of effort uh, into those songs, you know, and they, they wouldn't do them until they were perfect. And um, Photograph is about as perfect as it comes. Um, and I think a lot of it just comes from that opening riff, the, the way the drums sound. I don't know. It's just this perfect hard rock pop hybrid. Absolutely. And a song that I've always loved, I've played it on the Talking Metal podcast, and they continue to play it in concert to this this day. Switch 625 from 1981 off the High and Dry record, essentially an instrumental. There's uh, you know some backing uh, vocals, or I don't know what I call them, like little, little vocal elements to the song, but no lyrics. And a song I believe I'd have to look it up, but I believe written by Steve Clark, another guy who, you know, along with Pete Willis, Steve Clark, even more so involved in almost every, every I would say every one of those classic Def Leppard songs uh, switch though. Any, any, anything you could share on that one? I mean, it's just incredible in that. I think they're kind of signaling more classic rock, like, Layla and they're also in Freebird, you know, where there's the big, you know, instrumental outro. So it was kind of like a, a tagged on a little bit to the end of, you know, bringing on the heartbreak on the album. I mean, one of the things that I really think makes Def Leppard great is they took from a wide variety of influences, you know, you know like they would hear a Layla, they would hear a Freebird and they would think, how can we make that our own? You know? So it's like, there's not, no one else, you know, it, kind of had a, a song like that was that rock and that was an instrumental, you know, in, in like 1980, 81, especially in the hard rock genre at least. But um, yeah, it just, it's just, it's just a crushing song. I mean, to kind of hear Steve's, you know, riff that kind of brings it. And like to your, to your point, they play it at almost every single show, 
I mean, it just. Yeah. I think it's to give Joe Elliott a little break, you know, instead of doing like a standard drum solo. I think it gives him a little, little four minute break to go catch his breath off stage. But I love hearing it. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, Mutt Mutt loved it so much that he wanted them to add lyrics, and I guess that was what. You know, there was one of those very few times that they told him no. You know, they they had a very, um, you know, kind of father, you know, fa- father-son relationship in terms of, you know, the ones that worked with him. But, uh, you know, very rarely would they tell him no. They would listen to him. But that was one of the ones where they put their foot down like, nope, it's staying an instrumental. Right on. So I want to run down the top five on your list. And I definitely want to encourage everyone to go check this list out. And it is a, a must read for any fan of Def Leppard. And then I want to talk to you more general about later era Def Leppard. But for for the listeners, uh, the fifth greatest Def Leppard song, Rock of Ages, as according to Tony. And bringing on the heartbreak, checking in at number four. Can't argue with that. Pour Some Sugar on Me, number three. Photograph, number two. And Hysteria, number one. You know, we we do see some of these uh, purists, I guess I'd call them, people like Martin Popoff, for example. Uh, are you familiar with Martin? Yeah. Yeah, so he, he loves the first, like, three Def Leppard albums, just loves them, and he hates Hysteria. You know, he, he I, I believe he gave Hysteria a zero, which is just absolutely ridiculous, a zero out of 10 star rating in his review book. Um, I, I, I when Hysteria came out, definitely, um, definitely was a little bit taken back by the new direction they were going. But through the years, I've really come to love that record and think it's an uh, absolute classic. Any anything you want to talk about? as far as that record goes and defending your decision to put so many of those songs in, let's say the, the top 20. You know, it, 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 and like I said, when you do one of these lists, you, you put it together. And if you go back two weeks later, you would probably change up one third of the list. And it really doesn't matter. You know, what's important is, is, you know, kind of, in this just doesn't go for me. It goes for anyone that does, doesn't want these lists. Read what they write about the songs, and you know, and not just look at the rankings. But like, I think you know, it's, it, you could look at Def Leppard in two ways. If you are looking at them as a you know part of the new wave of British heavy metal, you know, and you're disappointed with them, probably by the time they even get to Pyromania, you know, because they had definitely ventured into kind of more pop waters. You, you know, they they weren't. The, the guitars weren't as heavy. Um, you know, there was a sheen to the music. If you're m- more looking at kind of like a sexiness and a sway to, to the music, you're going to like Pyromania and Hysteria more. Um, what Mud and the band really did is they constructed these studio masterpieces. I mean, these are albums that almost would never be made today. I mean, even though they have, you have the tools to kind of make them sound like this. I mean, the amount of time and energy that they put into these albums, it's just unparalleled, you know, and especially back in the eighties. I mean, to put things in perspective, Def Leppard finished their Pyromania tour, I believe in January of 1984, that same month, Bon Jovi put out their debut album. When Hysteria finally came out in July or August of 87, Slippery and Wet had been out a year. So during that whole time, you know, between the end of the tour and between, you know, them putting an album out, Bon Jovi wrote, recorded three whole albums 
and played something like 700 live shows. I mean, to, to, just to put that in perspective of how much time went by. Right, right. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just staggering when you think about how much time that album took. But what they really did is, is they had tons of ideas and they really narrowed down to the 12 best. Um, one of the most fascinating things about Hysteria, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the song Woman. I think it was an odd choice to open the album, but what a lot of people don't know is Mutt Lang took three weeks to just mix that one song. And wow. I know the management and the band just thought he was insane. Yeah. You know, like they finished recording, I think in late 86, early 87, and he took something like six months, six or seven months to you were just mix the album yeah. in the first three weeks was just on women. But what he was doing, he was setting the template for how that whole album was going to sound. There's a lot of trial and error, but uh, when, when it comes to hysteria, what I really like about it is it's just, there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of different things, you know, you've got like, you know, you've got like rocket, you know, the second song, it's just like, you know, six minute song that no one ever thought it'd be a single, you know, they didn't play it once on the entire hysteria tour. And because the album really didn't take off until the fourth single it wound up being the seventh single you know so it was one of those weird things where when they went out and tour in 92 on the adrenalized tour they were playing that song live for the first time you know and they had to figure out how to play it um you know and then you just have some really just i mean just great you know classic rock big radio songs like you know you have sugar and you have animal uh you know armageddon it um you know just, just I, I don't know i mean i always come back to the riffs I always come back to the riffs with them. And the reason, you know, I kind of put the song Hysteria there at number one is really because about Steve and um, Phil, you know, and how their guitars just interact. You know, like Phil kind of came in and did a lot of solos on Pyromania, but he didn't really contribute a lot to that album, you know, because he was, you know, all the songs were written, you know, and he was there to just get that album out the door, finish all the guitar parts. This was the first time he was really able to collaborate. And it's really, it's sadly really the only album uh, at full capacity that both Steve and Phil worked on. And that really makes it um, special, you know, in their whole discography. You know, they never had an album that sounded quite like that. And, you know, you just listen to like the guitars on that, that, you know, that title track. It's just amazing. It's just this like perfect little, you know, song. And like, you know, one of the things you think about with, you know, Steve Clark is he was this Johnny Thunders like guitarist, you know, he had the, you know, that Les Paul, the long hair, but like, you know, you've got these two guys, you get, you got Steve and then you got Phil, who's like, you know, this, this technician, you know, he's almost clinical in his playing. And like, you can hear both sides of that on a lot of that record. And I really think that's, you know, if you sit, sit around and you really listen and you put headphones on, I think that's really one of the things you really come away with is the two distinct guitar styles that are kind of, you know, working together there right on so on through the night high and dry pyromania hysteria to me all definitive classics uh, uh, just amazing records from start to finish then you know there's this long weird break between hysteria and adrenalized and and steve of course sadly passes away from 92 let's let's actually let's skip adrenalized and and go to slang slang came out in 96 through like all those remaining Def Leppard records which ones really stand out to you because I'm completely in the dark on these records much like Bon Jovi 
like I love I love going to see Def Leppard. Unlike Bon Jovi, Def Leppard come out and just just play essentially the classic hits off those those older albums mm-hmm. in concert, which you know you could argue that one way or the other. But off those you know slang, euphoria, and and the self titled and all those old those more recent Def Leppard records of the past. 20, 20, 25 years, what songs really jump out as being awesome for you? Well, it's like each of those, you know, what was interesting to me is, um, you know, when I went back and did this exercise, I had forgotten about how good uh, the slang, you know, basically through the self-titled and 2014 albums really are. And I think one of the reasons that I had forgotten a little bit about it, I, I was a, I've always been a huge fan of Slang and Euphoria, but the band just doesn't fight for those albums in concert. You know, like you mentioned, it just, you know, I get where they're coming from. They want to go out, they're on a package tour, usually with two other acts. But, you know, beginning kind of in, you know, 2005, they really don't play more than one or two songs off, you know, whatever new album's out, um, which is a little disappointing. But, you know, in regards to songs, there there are, like, a bunch. I mean, one of the best, obviously, and probably the most popular from there is a song called Promises, which was, was on Euphoria. Yeah, I was going to say that's top ten for you on your on your list. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah it, I, mean, I, I mean, so, like, to kind of put Euphoria in perspective, we have to talk a little bit about slang. You know, Adrenalize came out in March 92. It debuted at number one. It sold, you know, it sold, like, three million copies. But we have to remember... Um, you know, this is March 92 and what was happening right then is by that summer, um, the whole Lollapalooza grunge alternative world was taking over, um, you know, to the point where I believe when Def Leppard got introduced at the MTV Awards that fall, they were booed a little. Uh, I mean, there was that much of a shift in the culture. And one of the things about Adrenalize is the overwhelming majority of it were songs and, you know, kind of seeds of songs that were planted during the hysteria sessions, you know, and they were originally hoping to get that out in 1989 as a kind of a, you know, a good stopgap album, but, you know, hysteria just kind of kept having life and they added a seventh single. So the band decided to take a little more time, but still the plan was not to wait five and a half or four and a half years, almost five years, um, afterwards. So the second that record hit shelves, it was a little dated in terms of sound because some of those songs are going back eight years. And it, it unfortunately hit shelves at a time when there was just a music revolution taking place. So, you know, what they did was, is they knew when they went to make their next record, they were going to completely, you know, redefine who they were. They're going to strip everything away. And I believe they went to a house in Spain and recorded much more organically. And they took their engineer with them and they just kind of just, you know, built on those ideas for the better part of a year. Now, when Slang came out, it didn't sound like Def Leppard at all. I mean, it's a brilliant record. I really, really urge people to go and listen to it. Um, I mean, there's so much going on there. There's a lot of Middle Eastern instruments. And I mean, they really, really made an A-grade album. The problem is, is that, you know, it's like people still kind of see that, you know, attach that Def Leppard stigma to it. So, you know, after that and the fact that that didn't sell well, there was kind of a thought, you know, like maybe we should go back and do what we're, we're, we're good at. You know, so they, they started working on songs and they actually brought Mutt back in for three songs. And one of them was Promises. And, you know, it opens with this great Phil Collins riff. 
you know, and it's like a siren call. And it just, I mean, it just soars out of the speakers. And it's just an incredible melody. It's got great background vocals. I mean, it's just, everyone sounds great. And Joe Elliott gives one of his greatest vocal performances ever in the song. You know, and this was 99. And it was right, you know, unfortunately, it was right before kind of like there was like a little bit of an 80s renaissance. You know, it was right at that time when, you know, Britney Spears and NSYNC and all of them were starting to, you know, make waves and big melodies were coming back. Um, so it probably didn't get the attention it really deserved. Uh, another great song from that era is Work It Out from the um, Sling album. And I, it's an, actually a single that they put out in 96. And it is actually something that's, um, I believe, it, the sole writer on it's Vivian Campbell. And basically, I mean, it's just it's this incredible opening. And I mean, it, it, I mean, sometimes what, you know, the band's talents were often camouflaged by the overall sheen of a lot of the production that was going on around them. But, uh, you know, they kind of went out and made something really organic and they gave it a harder edge. And it, it does sound of its time, like over the 90s. And it's a good thing. Um, you right. know, it could fit in well with like a Cure or Bowie or a Nine Inch Nails album. Um, but there's still guitars on it. Um, I mean, when you listen to it, you're not even sure if that's Joe singing, but it is. It is. But yeah, it's just an incredible song. Well, Tony, I do have to wrap it up here in a few minutes, but I, I did want to just uh, mention the last record they put out, which is, for me, probably the first album by Def Leppard that I went out and bought since Hysteria. I went and I bought the physical copy of the self-titled 2005 release, Def Leppard. And I think 14. I think it's 14? Was think it 14? Four, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Feels that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 2014 release of um, the self-titled record, which had some great songs on it. Let's Go was a great tune. I loved, uh, what was it, Man Enough was an awesome tune. Some really great songs on that record. And in some ways, kind of a return to form, in some ways not. Um, any thoughts on that most recent Def Leppard record, the self-titled you know, it was interesting when it came out, my mind was just not um, in a place, you know, to really hear that record. Uh, you know, I, I listened to it and I didn't think much of it. And when I kind of came up the idea and I pitched the idea for this article, I realized I'm like, I have to go spend some time at that record, you know, not just, you know, give it a once over. And uh, when I did, I was really stunned at how much I really liked it. Uh, you know, I, I was just, I mean, it, 14 songs, a lot of songs, but when you have a band only putting an album out every six, seven, eight years, I'll take it. Uh, just really, to your point, really kind of digging into, you know, what they do best. But on the flip side, they're also kind of, you know, tying into a, a lot of the things they do with their influences. Um, what's interesting about the record is there's a lot of single writers on it. Like, you know, there's a song called We Belong, where all five of the members take a verse. You know, it's the first time you have all five members singing on a song. I think that might have been the one I ranked highest on the list. And then you have, you know, other songs called like Sea of Love and Energize that were purely Phil Collin, uh, you know, writes. And the band kind of comes in and does their own thing. Um, Dangerous is another great, I mean, God, it sounds like it could be out of 1987. It, it, it's just incredible. And then, but, you know, there's some other ones like Wings of an Angel and Blind Faith. And they're really, I feel like they kind of like, harken back more to their, you know, Nawabin days, maybe not in terms of sound, but in terms of, you know, style, I could, I could see those being on a Judas Priest album of that time. 
Um, right on. Very, very strong record. Very strong record. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, where they, they took their time and they really crafted a really great collection of songs. Absolutely. And again, the article is all 145 original Def Leppard songs ranked worst to best. We're going to uh, post it or not post it, link it in today's show notes on TalkingRock.net and TalkingMetal.com. Tony, where's the best place for people to follow you online? Is it Twitter? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at the screen door dot com, at the screen door, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm easily found. I also still write for Anti Music, uh, so I can be found there. And uh, yeah, cool. You ever think Twitter's of writing a book? Here and there, you know, yeah. here and there, there's a possibility. You know, it's probably something I'll talk to you offline. It's possible. Um, the thing with the book is it's a lot of time and energy. Yeah. I and probably know. not in, in that much days. financial reward too. I've known some people who've written books, some that have even sold like 50,000 copies and they're like, yeah, I didn't really make that much money off it. You know? So it's, I think it's always got to be a labor of love. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, but I think anyone that does writing, it's, it's, it's for me, at least I'm fortunate. I, I, it's a labor of love. So I'm fortunate that way. All right, cool. All right, Tony, thank you very much. And we're going to end the chat here with Promises by Def Leppard here on Talking Metal.
Promises by Def Leppard. And big thanks to Tony for talking with me. I really appreciate his time and the work that he's done writing some great articles for the the website. So uh, definitely check him out on Twitter. We'll have his Twitter handle on uh, on the in the show notes on talkingrock.net. I want to remind you to watch Metal Crush. It's a, a show I'm producing and writing for the Sci-Fi Channel. It is a lot of fun. It's four episodes. We just posted our second episode yesterday, and the first episode did well. I hope the second one can do half as well as the first one because I know Andy Andy from Blackvale Brides, his fan base is just so rabid. They, they turn out for that stuff, which is why he was a good guest on the first episode. On the second episode, we have... Lejean from Seven Dust, Heidi from Butcher Babies, Ash from New Year's Day. It's a really great watch, even if you're not a fan of those artists or don't know much about them. It really is a great watch because we talk horror, we talk comics. Uh, it's not just music talk. Actually, music is is probably only about 20% of the talk. The rest of it's all about that fun stuff, movies and science fiction and stuff like that. So check it out. And again, follow Tony Kosminski on Twitter, and that'll do it. That'll do it, guys. I want to uh, just thank everyone for hanging out here, okay? We're going to get Tony back to talk Bon Jovi sometime in the near future. And in the meantime, let's end with some music. I guess we're kind of in a Def Leppard mode. Um, there's some like alt, alt metal stuff I want to play, but I don't think I'm going to do that on this episode because it would kind of be out of, out of bounds musically. Let's end with some new Ozzy Osbourne. This is Scary Little Green Men, possibly my favorite song off the latest Ozzy Osbourne record, which is called Ordinary Man. We'll check it out here on Talking Metal. Yeah.